Well, folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And later on for our inbox, we have a listener and her boyfriend who are thinking about getting engaged next year. And she's wondering, well, how do I kind of guard my heart during this waiting time? And what do I need to know? What do I need to do? One of our counselors, Jeremy Keaton, is going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, Rochelle Parham joins us to talk about letting go of comparing yourself with other people. So stay tuned for our conversation with her. All right, here we are for our roundtable, and we thought we would do a little retrospective uh, with three guests here on what I would tell my dating self. And I was giving these guys a hard time because John, our trusty producer, booked three men for this like maybe i'm i'm assuming it's because you know men clearly have more dating foibles than women you know women we have it all together so we'll see how this plays out you know and if i don't agree with what they say then we'll just either edit them out or i'll cut them off or something but no it's going to be all good so i want to welcome josh and glenn and michael hey guys hey all right well good to have you um, okay, well, this is, yeah, like I said, this is going to be fun because, uh, in fact, before we started taping, I said, yeah, I mean, I, what advice don't I have? And then Josh said, yeah, didn't you write a book about it? And I'm <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I did. So maybe I've already put all my stuff out there. So it'd be good to hear from other people. But let's start out by kind of like talking about, you know, histories here, because all of you guys are married. So clearly you made it to marriage. So congrats. <laughs> so somehow dating paid off in some way. But um, what did that look like? Like when you were dating, how much did you date prior to meeting your spouse? Was it just kind of like open season on weirdness? Or did you have a game plan? <laughs> did it accidentally hit you like the flu? Like what was kind of your story in this sphere? I'll start off. <laughs> I, you know, the uh, I think looking back for me, dating was I didn't have a whole lot of rules around it. I didn't have a whole lot of parameters around it. It was kind of, is she cute? Is she Christian? Those seem like good standards, and we'll move on from there. And I wasn't as intentional at all about um, the kind of uh, qualities I was. I should have been looking for. Mm-hmm. With my wife, by the time I finally got there, um, I, I was thinking that way, but I wished... I think if I look back and, and had had more um, standards about character early on, I probably would have just dated less. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's probably minimally what I would say to be, start us off. Yeah, that's good. I would say dating some in high school, mm-hmm. not that much, uh, more in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after college, uh, probably the relationships, there weren't that many, quote, steady dating mm-hmm. relationship so it mm-hmm. was more just getting to know uh young women okay uh, but that was kind of yeah. my experience good yeah i would say my experience was very similar to um yours josh and that i i dated quite a few people during college i never really focused on the intentionality of looking at the character and all those other things it was just like is she christian is she cute that's all i really cared about <laughs> it's a good starting point listen yeah. up ladies yeah. i guess you only so, need two things whatever um, okay yeah so that and i ended up you know each of those relationships ended for various reasons but it wasn't until i started dating lauren that i was really like okay i need to get my get my act together and actually look for specific qualities and character traits that are going to that I know are going to be good um, mm-hmm. for marriage. So Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because as you guys are talking, I think the one thing that came to mind for me is I thought it would be a lot easier than it was. I thought it was just like you just lock eyes with someone and eventually you have compatible traits or whatever. And I remember having this conversation with my mom and many of you longtime listeners know that I've shared this before. Because she like dated in the 50s, you know, and she's like, Lisa, this is easy. You know, what's your problem? Because it literally was like that idyllic, like you take someone out for like a soda and a movie or something like whatever. And then it's just like, you seem cool. Okay, cool. Let's make a go of it. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? And it was not like that for me at all. And I think, you know, there were all these mind games and and weirdness. And um, yeah, it just seemed... It seemed hard, but I think to the whole point of like qualities and intentionality, I also remember that even as a Christian who was serious about her faith, I felt like I was in several seasons of like 
too many chances where I, Mm. you know, these works in progress, like I was always dating them rather than being like, there are like actual non-negotiables that I don't even want to, you know, especially in my seasons of online dating, I was just chatting with random guys where I'd end up like witnessing to them because they said they were Christians. And then I'm like, well, maybe I can move the needle here. It's a dating ministry. (laughs) (laughs) It was. I paid like 50 bucks a month to witness to guys for I don't even know how long. So I'm hoping God's going to give me some credit for that. I don't know. We'll see. But okay, let's talk about what do you feel like you know, what are a couple things that you feel like you did well while you were dating? And then I want to move into a few things that, you know, really advice <laughs> that you would have given to yourself had you known now. But are there any things that you felt like you did well? I mean, obviously, you laid out a couple of them like, yeah, I tried to date Christians, you know, but what did that look like? Like winnowing through who you would even ask out or how that would play out? Um, I would say for me, it was it was very... <laughs> It was very difficult. I feel like things I did well when I think back about like dating intentionally that I didn't really do that well. So um, I would say that whenever I started dating Lauren, who I'm now married to, I say that I really did focus on God during that relationship mm-hmm. more so than I focused on like my feelings and the infatuation of it all because that's super easy to focus on um, mm-hmm. in a new relationship. Um, I would say previous relationships, I didn't really do anything well. Um, when I, whenever I started dating Lauren, I really started to focus on my relationship with God and focus how he was leading me, um, through the relationship. I think that really helped me to have a clear view on what he really wanted for my life and who he wanted me to marry. So mm-hmm. I would say that it was easier to find things that, uh, I didn't do well <laughs> in the course mm-hmm. of, of dating. Um, but I think, I think there was a, a certain intentionality. I mean, relationships mattered to me. Uh, maybe at times too much. I remember as a kid thinking to myself, you know, and, and kind of just daydreaming. Mm-hmm. And it probably was a bit idealistic as far as what the daydreams were. Um, they were really romantic. They weren't sexual. They were romantic. Um, but I, I would say the fact that it mattered to me a lot was uh, a positive. It was something that I felt if I can be the right person, that that's going to be that's going to be more important than finding the right person, which also falls into what I didn't do well because I think there's some changes there that uh, I, I've made over the years. But I think the fact that it was important to me mm-hmm. was a strength. Yeah, that's good for me. I would say iterations, um, and I, I guess I say that positively and negatively. But as you would date, as I would date different folks throughout high school or college, I would learn from each situation. Um, I, I think. A second thing that ties in that I would say is positive is I was picky. I, I probably wasn't as picky about who I was trying to become, but I was very picky about who I wanted to marry. Mm-hmm. And as I would go through these iterations of dating people, I would see things, good or bad, in any given person. And I would realize, mm, I don't want to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spend a lifetime dealing with dishonesty or somebody who's insanely jealous or uh, someone who tells me, that they know this is what God wants us to do and it's violating my conscience or not following my lead on something. So there were, there were, I would say iterations that I would learn from. I wish I didn't date so many people still. So I wish I could have learned those iterations maybe more through discipleship Mm -hmm. rather than experience, Mm -hmm. but also being picky, I think is a good thing to a degree. um, If if we're talking character wise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I think I realized that, one of the things was how much more I could have worked on things apart from a dating relationship, kind of to what you're saying, Josh, of like, I realized probably through dating that, wow, I'm horrible at um, expressing my, like I was uh, not totally like runaway bride, but I really was a little bit of a, like, I felt like dating for me was a job interview and I had to like ace the test and rather than rather than being like this is a two-way street and Mm -hmm. i'm supposed to be finding out about them too Mm -hmm. so i feel like that and also i realized like i had never learned how to do conflict well Mm -hmm. i mean i was either super assumptive that the person would either think exactly like i did or just agree with me because hello i'm you know pretty awesome whatever um or that we would just be able to come to terms with something and there wouldn't be you know especially a fellow christian you Mm -hmm. know so i felt like i I had a lot to learn in that space. Um, 
All right. So let's kind of segue into that. Like if you were to straight up give yourself some advice during, you know, your dating season, like what that would look like, what would you have done differently? I would say um, for me, I would have focused on how I could grow in the relationship and grow in my own personal walk with God more. I think I was so focused on, oh, like, is she, is she going to be good for me? Mm, (laughs) And mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't think about how I could possibly change to be, you know, good for her. Yeah. And so that was something. Because people totally run the compatibility thing. Like that was so yeah. big, mm-hmm. isn't that? Like it was mm-hmm. just going to solve everything. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Just and made so, me think of that. yeah. And I just, for me, I was like so focused on that. And it wasn't until I started doing premarital counseling where I realized I had a pretty, pretty big pride issue, um, pretty big issue with conflict, not liking, I didn't want to let it go. I always wanted to argue and I wanted to be right all the time. So. That's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so I, I think that going back, I would have, I wish I would have, you know, spent more time focusing on how I could change um, for the better of the relationship rather than thinking that, thinking that Lauren had to change, mm-hmm. you know, which it was mostly me that needed to change. So mm-hmm. There was some advice that I was given by a youth pastor that I went and spoke to one time about a dating relationship. And um, his words, I think I kind of applied them at that time, but I probably could have applied them in a more general way, which would have been good. He said, Glenn, cool your jets. Hmm. You know, um, I think I I probably gave off vibes as far as how important relationships were. Hmm. And I think I probably could have just kind of taken a, a step back from my emotions. Mm. Easier to say, harder to do, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, not to be just right at the crest of where my emotions were. And I think that would have been very valuable. Okay. So are you saying you did that by the time you met your now wife? Elizabeth. <laughs> no, Elizabeth, or did she just give you a pass on that? Well, I was <laughs> a lot older at <laughs> that time. I was, I was about 31 okay. when I met Elizabeth, 32 when we... 31 or 32, I forget exactly when we married. Um, So by that point in time, I think I had kind of learned the advice that Tom Walsh had given. Okay, good. Yeah, I don't know that that's very different from what I would say. I think looking back in a retrospect on how I did it, it went from emotion to emotion, crush to crush. And there was probably some theology that was in my head, too, about how I'd find my wife, my future wife at the time, about... Uh, maybe a little bit of love at first sight or something of that nature. And and so whoever could produce the most, you know, substantial emotion in me uh, by how they interacted with me or how they looked at me or whatever, maybe that's what drove me. And the whole goal of the Christian life to become more like Christ, if that's what sanctification is about and that's what my life should have been about— I was looking more for that emotion and who could generate that in me than I was at trying to become like Christ. So I would I would just like look back and I'd say like as cliché as it might sound, try to be like Jesus. Try to actually look at him, look at his character, look at his life, study the word, devote yourself to being like him and check the motivations of your heart more thoroughly and for me that would have revealed like I I wanted somebody to produce a a emotion in me that made me feel special or loved or cared about. And I was looking to essentially a a future wife or the idea of a future wife to be more messianic than Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that brings up a good point. Is there anything like in the course of your dating, like with any of your relationships, including the people you're now married to, where you felt like I wasted a lot of time doing this and it ended up not being important in the long run, whether it was ways that you spent your time, stuff you focused on, questions you asked, kind of getting back to the compatibility thing, like, are we compatible in 12 different areas or whatever? Um, And is there anything that you feel like, oh, I wish I would have prioritized this more? And, And I'll just say, I'll give one. In one relationship, and I think I corrected it for, you know, future ones, I spent way too much time like texting this guy, like to the point where, and we talk about this at Boundless, where all of a sudden your day is just ruled by you're getting pinged on something and you're responding right there. Like we were way too in each other's business to the point where it blurred the lines of like my normal day, like my work day, my church, my friends, you know, whatever. He was just way too in my business and I had to ratchet that back. And it was, it to me, the the rationalization was, 
oh, we got to, you know, know how to converse or just have like these everyday conversations, but it just like went way too far. So Hmm. that's something I definitely had to change. How about you guys? I I would say I wish I had dated in community from the get go, like just from the get go. Like, Mm -hmm. and and I don't mean like group dating. I don't mean like 10 people going out to dinner. It could be that, but I mean more than that in the sense that I wish I had just shared with whoever was in my life, guys in my life that I trusted and were pointing me to Christ likeness, the thoughts I was having, Mm -hmm. like just running those past them. Like I'm thinking about this girl. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about this girl? What are your thoughts about me as I think about this girl like and and just running all that through the lens of community just trusting that i don't actually have the best view of myself and my intentions people around me can discern that probably better than myself when they're my own emotions I, if i had done that i think i would have avoided some pitfalls much earlier on mm-hmm. and that's so good because that's so i mean you hear it so many times when people you know, if they're too intense early on without bringing people in, all of a sudden they're less willing to look at red flags or be like, you know, you get the, well, you don't really know them like I know them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to like bring people in after the fact. Mm -hmm. So that's a good point. Yeah. I would say probably the pursuit of exclusivity, Mm. you know, just wanting it to be this, you know, we're in love Mm -hmm. and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a romantic. Um, so I'm not down on it, but I think I probably, um, put it at a position that was that was too high. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there is a lot of value in just getting to know someone in the context of how they relate with other people. You know, when you think of outer space, you know, it's dark. There's nothing for the you know for light to reflect off of. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, we look around, we can see we can see things. And I think when you're around a person who's not just there to impress you, or you're just not there to impress her, mm-hmm. um, you get to see the character of that person a whole lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I would say for me, I would have probably read more books. Hmm. I feel like um, for me, I, specifically Gary Thomas, reading some of his books. Sacred Search and Sacred Marriage. I feel like those two books that I read, I feel like they were both super helpful in helping me figure out all of those things that we're talking about here. Those, like, why do I feel this way? Why do I um, think these things? And so I think one of the most um, profound things that he said that really stuck with me is don't marry somebody based on the one thing that's going to decline over time, which is looks. Mm-hmm. And that was like such a big thing for me. And I was like, oh, well, she, she's super pretty and super important to me, which is obviously an important thing, but it's not the most important thing. And so I wish I would have spent more time focusing on not only is she Christian, but is she is she godly? Mm-hmm. And is she actually, you know, pursuing pursuing Christ? And is she, are we going to be able to do that together? Mm-hmm. And I feel like I didn't spend near as much time focusing on those qualities and reading books on how to pinpoint those different character traits. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I actually got, I had um, John take down, he was talking to um, Bailey, who's one of our coworkers here about something she would say. And she had mentioned this and, and John said, oh, I'm going to write this down because this is good. Kind of that whole idea of like, recognize in a relationship what's normal and what's not normal. Like so many people will try so hard, you know, to Glenn's point, like because they're a hopeless romantic or they just want, you know, they think like we're Christians, we should be able to make anything work. They overlook issues or problems and think that certain behaviors are normal when it's like you shouldn't if you're exhausted from trying to make your relationship work, (laughs) you need to consider that this might not be working, you know, or if you're constantly trying to placate the person you're dating or you're changing yourself to date them and stuff. And she said that was a really great learning for her. She said, you know, it isn't normal to feel like you're a problem or that you're annoying or that you're at fault all the time or that your opinions don't matter. That's something I've seen with a lot of girls I've met who've been in bad relationships. You know, when things are off, you tell yourself it's normal to feel this way or to explain away bad behaviors, but it's important to understand what's normal and what's okay. Um, So I thought that was really good. Which is a good litmus test, I think, in the dating space. Once you're married, like, you go through ruts, you go through seasons of, I do feel like I'm constantly having, I'm exhausted from having to work through this conflict that isn't getting resolved. And again, I would go back to, and it's even harder then, but going back to this idea of community to help you work through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about abuse necessarily, but like talking about like the type of relationship where 
Like you get stuck in things. You you see things myopically and you don't um, include her opinion or she doesn't include your opinion. And there are ruts in marriage that you've got to work through. Mm-hmm. But if you're finding those in the dating space really early on, man, maybe it's just a contentious relationship that should end. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's it's a different litmus test, I think, when you're married because you want to work through those things. Yeah. I think that's good because, in fact, I was just I'm trying to think of there was a married friend of mine that I was asking the other day, like, what's something in your marriage that you still fight over? Like the things that just kind of still come up, because I mm-hmm. think that's a you know, misconception is a lot of people of like, if we just work on it long enough or hard enough or come to the same, you know, this will eventually clear up. And and it really is. There are some things that you just Oh, actually, it was my it was my sister. I was visiting family last week, and I asked her, and she said the difference that she and her hu- husband have on, especially like travel. Like he, she bought him a pillow that says "Let's just stay home," <laughs> because that's like his constant. I mean, whether it's a church thing, whether it's a party, whether it's a vacation, he would never plan or choose to do anything if she didn't initiate it, and it kind of like irks her. So it's like it's our same old argument of let's go do something something let's go whatever and she's like i don't know that we'll ever resolve that you know it's just kind of she wishes that he would come around but he won't (laughs) so i don't know yeah it's some of those things you just have to live with yeah you know just those differences of opinion or perspective yeah um a man and a woman they they can see things from a very different angle yeah for sure so Man, well, good thoughts, you guys. I mean, it's like we're just getting the conversation started. But those of you listening, I mean, we really wanted to have a conversation around, like, what does it look like to look back on your dating years and think through, yeah, maybe some lessons learned and what would I tell that person now? And so, um, you know, as a couple of the guys here said, it's great to kind of start getting that wisdom from people now and get into community, get other eyes on your relationship, um, make sure that you're the person that is, you know, not looking at some Hollywood ideal or taking your cues like from the culture um, or people that aren't going to give you the godly advice, but that you're going to go after it in a healthy way. So thanks, you guys, for weighing in. You're yeah. welcome. Happy to be here. If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, if you've been hearing the same old voice of the same old lies, if you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain. Pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom, save it. He's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. Well, folks, here we are for our culture segment, and uh, we are going to talk about the exciting topic today of comparison. And as I was talking with our guest (laughs) before we started taping, I said, yeah, well, this is something that, of course, young adults don't struggle with at all. And we got a good chuckle out of that. So um, I want to introduce you to a new friend of The Boundless Show, Rochella Parham. Rochella, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, Lisa. Well, very fun and our privilege. Um, Rochella is, I mean, she's an author. She's a blogger. She's a speaker. Um, she blogs at her website, Imparting Grace, and we will have a link to that for all of y'all. Um, but she also is the author of the book, Mythical Me, Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison. And that's what we're going to go ahead and uh, talk about today, because I think that it's just increasing in our culture, this it's almost like assumptive. It's not like you say, oh, well, I'm going to I'm gonna compare myself with others because maybe then I will improve or it'll give me some great ideas of things to work on. It's just something that now is second nature to us because of social media and so many other things going on in our culture. Um, and Rochelle, I appreciate that in the book, you are very forthcoming about this being something that hey, you're not immune to, and you certainly haven't been in the past. Um, so talk a little bit about sure how <laughs> yeah, how comparison for you I... even went back to childhood. Take us back there and really where some of this uh, was seeded. 
Yeah, it does. It did, in fact, go back to childhood, and I think that's true for a lot of us, but my situation was a little unusual, and it's something I wasn't actually aware of, Lisa. Hmm. Um, Just in a nutshell, I once spent a wonderful day with three friends, but at the end of the day, as I recounted the time to my husband, I compared myself to each of those women. And my husband stopped me mid-sentence and said, you do this all the time. You compare yourself to every person you come in contact with, and you pick out their best attribute and assume that you should have their best attribute. And he went on to say, you've created this mythical composite woman made up of all these good attributes, and that's who you think you're supposed to be. Hmm. Well, I'll be honest and say I was a little salty when he first told me this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'd been married for 15 years. I didn't realize I did this, and I was kind of defensive. But later, um, in a time of, of vulnerability and actually some relational stress, came back to this, and I ended up seeing um, a professional, a mental health professional, who helped me to understand that, in fact, this was a pattern for me. And we traced it back, layer by layer, to the fact that I was born with a birth defect. Hmm. I um, have a huge birthmark of all things. It covers most of the right side of my body, a port wine stain. And so from my earliest days, but, you know, when I was a tiny girl, I was always looking around and looking at the other kids and realizing that I was different from them. I, I, they were very obviously to me, they were better than I was. I felt like I didn't fit in. And that's kind of what started it for me. And it's a pattern that just grew and grew until it really had become um, a difficulty in my life, and it was creating all kinds of relational problems in addition to just the problems it created for me. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because even getting back to what you said, your husband, uh, you know, kind of confronting you on your comparison with friends, mm-hmm. it's like when we do that, it almost is like a backhanded, like we're, we're trying to make it a good quality about ourselves because we say that we're just oh, building yeah. other people up. But then we we add that little flip end of it of of like you know well they're so this and this I wish I was more like that and and so it becomes this like less than more than less than kind of thing and I think that's where it gets kind of to be a trap for us. Um, so absolutely, it, yeah. it it is a trap and and for years when I would look for help, oh Lisa, the help that I found was so trite. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of pop psychology and, oh, you're perfect just as you are, which, of course, is nonsense. And I was never able to find anything that actually helped me um, get out of that trap of constant comparison. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about, I like where you say in the book, you, you say that really comparison, we, we immediately think, of course, now because it's so talked about in in relation to, you know, digital addiction and social media and fear of missing out mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. It's always a bad thing. But you actually say in the book, really, I like you, you the way you say this, you say comparison itself is simply a tool. And so give us a couple, you know, the good comparison versus the bad comparison kind of thing and how we can tell the difference. Yeah, well, when I began studying it, um, a, a couple more than once, I heard Christian teachers say that comparison was a sin. And I thought, well, no, wait a minute. (laughs) And I started actually looking at the tool of comparison. And honestly, I realized that comparison is, you know, putting one something on one side of the scale, another thing on the other, and looking for equilibrium. So for instance, um, when my son was in the hospital, and alarms would go off because maybe his oxygen saturation had dipped too low. Well, they were comparing his level of oxygen with an ideal. That's a very helpful comparison. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was life-saving. Or, um, you know, when we think about the, the fight for, for justice around the world, people have realized that, let's say, for instance, the way Christians are treated in 
many areas of the world where they have to go underground. They're fearful for their lives. We can take a stand against that because we compare that with the way Christians are treated in a free society where they're able to assemble freely. That is a very helpful comparison. And furthermore, comparison is a teaching tool that Jesus used all the time. You know, I mean, he would say, oh, the kingdom of God is like, and he would give us a picture and we would understand. So there's so many helpful comparisons. But I really believe that the social comparisons, that is when we, when we put ourselves on one side of the scale and another person on the other side, um, sometimes, yes, of course, sometimes that can help us get better. But I really believe it's problematic because it's an isolating act. Mm-hmm. It separates us from one another. And I think that's, that's where the problem comes in. Even though it's a very natural human tendency, it's still isolating. And I just don't think that's what we were created for. Yeah. What would you say? I mean, let's talk a little bit about why you think humans are so quick to compare our own insecurities with another person's strengths. Like why, you know, why is it that we can't just all come to the table and be honest about like, you know, you rarely get into a social situation where you're like, well, here's what I'm really great at. <laughs> you know, no one's no one's right. going to lead that in a, in a conversation or bring, you know, bring that out at dinner or whatever. What what is it? Is it kind of like a false modesty or why is this so prevalent in our culture today? I think some of it is a false modesty. I think some of it is a very slightly twisted theology Mm-hmm. Um, especially I find a lot of um, young Christian women are taught that they need to try to model themselves after the, quote, Proverbs 31 woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means they need to be all that and a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they, they're never actually studying what Proverbs 31 stands for. Um, another is that I think a lot of times we have really good motives, but we perhaps don't quite comprehend the great love of God and the um, the very high, high level of love and care and compassion that God has for all who are made in His image. Mm-hmm. So it, it can be a false modesty. We, we want to cultivate Christian humility. We really do. But we confuse that virtue of humility with say, self-deprecation, mm-hmm. putting ourselves down. And, and we end up in a, a, a bit of a bind that doesn't have to exist if we can really, you know, I, I go back time after time after time to the third chapter of Ephesians, to Paul's prayer, that we would begin to comprehend the love of the Lord. That's what he prays for, is that we would comprehend, <laughs> because it's it's almost beyond comprehension, and yet the comprehension of God's love is what can lead us into starting to overcome that insecurity. I mean, we know we're not perfect. That's why some of the pop psychology is so bothersome. The answer is never going to be, oh, you're perfect just as you are. That's not true. Mm-hmm. None of us is perfect. <laughs> That's never going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sad that in Christ we can have a real answer, but sometimes we get a little twisted along the way. Yeah. Well, and you definitely go into that in, in the book itself, first saying that, you know, most of us struggle to accept that we're loved by God. We certainly have trouble right. expressing that and understanding it. Um, and then really, it does come down to identity. In fact, I want to use a um, or say, quote a Henry Nowen quote that you use in the book, um, where he says, we're not what we do, we're not what we have, we're not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child of a loving creator. It's almost like we all need to just write that down and like say it every morning when we get up, you know. <laughs> right. Like... That's a very good idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so funny sometimes in our quest for humility, 
we we will say i'm just i am absolute trash i'm terrible i'm you know i'm nothing but a sinner mm-hmm. that isn't true mm-hmm. we're you're not nothing but a sinner you're a beloved child of god and so i think true humility is actually agreeing with god about the truth of you it's like proverbs the third chapter of proverbs trust in the lord with all your heart lean not on your own understanding your own understanding of yourself mm-hmm. may make you think that you're unworthy but what God says about you is that you are his beloved child, mm-hmm. created by God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I actually, I want us to go into a couple uh, suggestions that you might have for really how we cannot lose perspective on this love of God. But before we do that, I want you to back up and because again, talking about comparison, like, what's the difference? How do we recognize signs of unhealthy comparison? Because I think, you know, it's one, I, I'm not fooling anyone to say, like, I cannot, you know, I did it in high school, I can no longer do it. I wasn't good at it then. I'm not good at it now. Calculus is not, <laughs> calculus is right. not my strong suit. That is just being honest. Like, that's a statement of fact. So that's not me downplaying myself or whatever. So how do we discern? But I can easily see sneakier things where I would say, well, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not good, you know, or I'm not, I'm less of a person because of XYZ. That can creep in too. So what are some of those signs of unhealthy comparison that we should be kind of nipping in the bud as we see them creep into our thought patterns? Anything that um, well, to begin with, when we start from a place of insecurity mm-hmm. and when a uh, looking around at someone else leads us to a greater feeling of insecurity rather than a place of encouragement. Hmm. We have to remember the enemy of our souls is the accuser. So when looking at someone else and recognizing that they are beloved and blessed is a wonderful thing. But when that leads us to think that we are not also beloved and blessed, then it, we, we're into a very inappropriate path. Yeah. One of the things that, that I came to learn was that um, it's actually God revealed to me that the fact that another person has a gift or a talent that I lack does not indicate a deficiency in me. Instead, it demonstrates the beauty of God's design for humanity. God, who is in in his very being, a community of three persons, designed us, designed mankind in his image. So God, who is relationship, designed us for relationship. So a comparison that leads us to greater relationship, cooperation, compassion for one another, that's okay. Mm -hmm. A comparison that leads us to isolation, feeling less than, feeling more than, feeling discontent and insecure, that takes us away from relationship, and that runs against God's purposes. Yeah, it's so true. And it's just funny to me how, you know, we could, we could kind of put that put those parameters down and say, and it's still hard because we'll say like, okay, well, they have this gift and I have this gift, but I like their gifting Mm -hmm. better than my gifting. So I wish we could trade. Absolutely. (laughs) We always want what we don't have. And of course, with with our audience, it's very easy to, um, in fact, we have, um, we just had an article on this not too long ago about the comparison of being single and being married. And those who are single and Mm -hmm. wishing they were married are, are wishing for that and thinking that God's not blessing them. And then we have the marrieds who are like, you have so much freedom and I wish I were in your shoes. And, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like we can never seem to be satisfied with what God's given us and the gifts that he's given us for this season. So So I do, I do think one of the things that we must do is not just count our blessings, because honestly, you start counting your blessings just for the sake of counting your blessings. And it's real easy to start counting someone else's blessings mm-hmm. <laughs> and just go right back into comparison. But if we can look at the way we're blessed it right now in this season and let that draw our gaze to God who gives the blessings, 
and recognize that there's no, there's no shortage of blessing. So someone else may have something we dearly want or that we wish we had, but we have something that someone else dearly wants and wishes they had. So if we can allow looking at our own situation to lead us to God and realize that God has absolutely no scarcity, mm-hmm. no scarcity at all, and we can trust that whatever God has for us is good. We may not always be able to see the good, and sometimes what we'll experience is really bad, but God is always good, and we can depend on God to bless us with what we need when we need it. Yeah. Well, let's uh, kind of in the last few minutes that we have here, Rochelle, I would love for you to, one of the things that you talk about in the book, in both understanding um you know, our struggle with comparison, and then also understanding the love of God and our identity in Christ, you say that this isn't an overnight process. It's little changes that add up that piece by piece (laughs) allow us to get a bigger picture of this. So give us some of the, for that person who's like, I don't know that I could ever have freedom from this. I'm just constantly, I, I see so many people that I feel have things I don't have that are doing things I don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what would be your encouragement and your advice for them? You're absolutely right. It is a process. One of the things that we need to recognize is that habits can be formed and changed. Habits can't just be broken. Habits are housed, and modern neuroscience has shown us that habits are housed way down in the gray matter of our brain. So you can't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm just not going to blank, whatever the, the difficult thing is. But you can interrupt a habit loop. So, for instance, I know so many people who keep their cell phones right by their beds. And they use their cell phones as an alarm clock and, you know, an all-around tool. I'd say one place to start is buy yourself a cheap alarm clock and plug your cell phone in in the next room. (laughs) Do not have your cell phone right by your bed. I realize you might need it nearby, but don't let it be the very first thing you can reach for. That's probably more temptation than most of us can handle. (laughs) Instead, when the cheap alarm clock goes off, Start your day right there before your feet ever hit the floor. I'd like to start with the Lord's Prayer and ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I get a little more granular than that. I want God's will to be done in my bedroom, in my closet, in my shower, in my house, in the street where I live. I want I want God's will to be done in every aspect of my life. So before I ever get out of bed, I pray the Lord's Prayer. And that has helped me. Rather than reaching for my phone where I can immediately flip to Instagram, I reach instead for asking God to lead my day. Actually, I would say even before you get out of bed, chances are good you didn't get enough sleep because maybe you were scrolling through your phone late at night before you finally laid it down. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't get enough sleep. And in our lack of rest, we're more vulnerable to attack. So start with some sleep, which really is an act of trust that God will take care of you. Use a cheap alarm clock to get up and then proceed through your day one by one, recognizing the temptation to compare and allow yourself to recognize that the habit can be changed. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be cured of comparison. These social comparisons, are it's just the way our brains are wired. We do, we look at others. It's the way we measure ourselves. But you don't have to be stuck in the trap of constant comparison. For one thing, you have the tool of prayer available at any time. So when I'm really tempted, I have learned to use little breath prayers right in that moment. You know, I'm probably not strong enough to look to God and pour out my heart right in a moment of the trial of fire. But I can say, Lord, ground me again in your love. That simple little prayer, I just kind of keep it in my pocket, and I can pull it out right at the moment that I'm tempted. 
And, you know, I'm asking God. That's not a wish. That is a request to a very powerful God to help right in that moment. Mm-hmm. And another thing I do is when, when I have engaged in a comparison, recognize that I let it take me down the path of bad, down the path of envy, or down the path of real insecurity. Instead of beating myself up, I've learned to say, Lord, thank you for blessing Betsy or whoever I was comparing myself (laughs) to. Thank you for the way you've blessed her. Please continue to bless her. And Lord, I need your blessing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, beating yourself up is not really a good strategy. Yeah. Looking to God, who loves you so much, and asking for help just step by step, these can become new habits. And the new habits can take the place of the old bad habits. But expecting to be able to overcome it, you know, by tomorrow or by Christmas, that's not going to happen. It's going to take years of these new habits. That's what, you know, we undertake these spiritual disciplines to realize more and more the love of God and to try to become, to ask God to help us become more like Christ, who had such trust in his Father that he, he didn't need comparison. Yeah. Well, those are such great principles. And, you know, I was even thinking as you were talking, like, that's uh, even on the days when we feel especially strong, those are just habits, good habits to have, because you never know. I mean, as, as we know from Scripture, Satan is always waiting to sneak around the corner right. and jump on us in our weakness. And so shoring up yep. through these habits is so helpful. And so I really want to thank you for outlining those. Um, well, folks, the book is Mythical Me, Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison. We have been talking uh, to our new friend here at Boundless, Rochelle Aparam. And uh, we actually want to make a copy of her book available to you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So, you know, we do this a lot of times with books that we find that we like that we think would be helpful for you. So if you hop over to boundless.org, you can search for 764. That's this week's episode. And just click on the book cover there. You give a gift to Boundless in any amount um, to support the work that we're doing here. And we want to send a copy of Rochelle's book to you in return. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for joining us today and being part of this conversation and for all the great work that you've done in, in putting this out there to encourage us and, and help us along the journey alongside you. Well, thank you so much. I just a joy to be with you. God bless your work. Clap your hands and stomp your feet till you find that gospel because it's all you'll ever need, all you'll ever need. Clap your hands and stomp your feet till you find that gospel because it's all you'll ever need, all you'll ever need. I've got an old church choir singing in my soul. I got a sweet salvation and it's beautiful. Well, hey, it is time for the inbox portion of our show, and we have got Counselor Jeremy Keaton here. Jeremy. Hi, good to be with you again. (laughs) Good to have you here. Uh, This question is pretty short this week, but definitely uh, needs some insight, and so I'm going to go ahead and read it. Our listener says, my boyfriend and I know we want to get married and have talked about it, but we probably won't be engaged until sometime next year. How do I guard my heart and mind during this time? I'm struggling to find the line between keeping appropriate boundaries, even in my thoughts and feelings, but also preparing for the logistics of marriage. Any advice? Hmm. <laughs> so yeah. kind of that zero to 60 you know, <laughs> thing that a lot of singles are critical of, of like, you know, 
how in the world am I supposed to prepare for marriage if I can't prepare for marriage? So yeah, and that's really the na- the the nature of, of my thoughts when I want to answer this. It's it's good on you for pacing yourself mm-hmm. um, to the realities that are in play. There are some realities I don't know the reasons, but there is a pace that needs to be followed. And guarding your heart, of course, is key. I mean that's scriptural, and I agree with that. So ask yourself what exactly are you guarding your heart from? What is the threat or the non-ideal situation in in your heart, in your situation, that uh, you are protecting yourself from? I think that's important. If you're using the phrase, I need to guard my heart, from what? And then that will, uh, depending on the answer, it will dictate your actions. Then, as you guard... You can then take the time that you have productively as a time of development, not development for the logistics of a wedding or the logistics even of setting up a household or how you'll live after marriage financially. I'm talking about development and growth in yourself, your emotions, your view of marriage, your triggers where you're reactive, your self-soothing skills. Um, working on family of origin issues that we can all reflect on and, and grow through, being able to do that before you get engaged. That's where pre-engagement counseling, Lisa, really comes in. I, I am a big advocate if you have the opportunity for pre-engagement counseling. That could be so great. Um, what could, on the one hand, be an inconvenience of needing to wait, you reframe this as a luxury that you have several months to focus on these Uh, types of things. And, you know, getting engaged, Lisa, I've seen this. Engagement has a way of making some people blind or even stupid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I don't mean to be harsh with that, but (laughs) wedding planning starts, uh, public announcements are out, gawking at rings are happening, you know, on the finger, and really all objectivity is gone. And we sometimes proceed past conversations Mm -hmm. that need to be had. Uh, that should have been had before all the distractions or even flat-out warning signs Mm -hmm. because we have too much invested publicly and otherwise that it'll just all work out. This new piece of information or this new hesitation, we're no longer objective, and we we may sweep things under the rugs, and we may be aware of it, and we may even be blind to it. Mm. That's where pre-engagement counseling in this person's situation, while it may seem bad, is actually potentially quite good. And this slowing down um, can really be an asset in Mm -hmm. people's lives, identifying the key areas of growth that you want to invest in. And then you can enter engagement with readiness and confidence. And I'm an advocate of um, long pre-engagement. That's sort of even, um, you know, your intent to be married is maybe not public. And then a very short engagement, um, publicly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this person is set up for a a good opportunity here. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for weighing in on that. Well, folks, um, that is it for this week's show. My goodness, they always go by so fast. And uh, but fortunately, we have next week as well. (laughs) In the meantime, for those of you that are loving the Boundless show, maybe you're new, maybe you're not so new. But if you have not yet left us a review on Apple Podcasts, would you be willing to hop uh, right to reviews right now and do that? Because leaving your review, especially if it's positive, will tell people about the show and will encourage them to give it a listen as well. So we sure appreciate you as part of the Boundless family. We're all in this together. And so we would love to get your review and tell others about the show as well. Well, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Some say abortion is harmless, even helpful for women. But is that really true? As a Christian, you know it's not. Are you ready to share with your friends what the Bible has to say, especially after Roe v. Wade? Nearly five decades of legalized abortion have harmed every aspect of our society, including women. Join us online October 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern as Alexander DeSanctis speaks on how abortion harms our culture and disadvantages women. Register at FocusOnTheFamily.com lighthouse.